Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracon. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina who is accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a myriad of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. Before we start this episode, a quick word about another Crime Story Media production. October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. On our last episode, we looked at the testimony related to the introduction of Alex Murdoch's 911 call as evidence, as well as the questioning of the fire and rescue responder who first examined the bodies of the victims. On this installment, we review the testimony of Colleton County Sheriff's Captain Jason Chapman, the senior officer who responded to the scene of the Murdoch murders. That's all coming up right after the break. 2023 Chapman is a stocky man sporting short brown hair with bangs hanging on his forehead and a beard with flecks of gray. He wears a dark blue sheriff's dress uniform with a blue tie and his service ribbons, badge, and collar insignia on full display. The prosecutor begins his questioning by asking the witness to offer the jury his biographical information. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up and what education did you, did you obtain? Sure. I'm a, a native, born in Walterboro. Uh, I've lived here most of my life. Graduated from what was Walterboro High School at the time. I attended a college of Charleston and the University of South Carolina, Salkahatchee, before starting my career in law enforcement. I actually joined a cadet program well before age of 21, then became a reserve deputy, dispatcher, and then a class one officer. And I've now been doing law enforcement. I'm in my 26th year. 26 year career. Would you walk us through when you first got into law enforcement and kind of the roles you've uh, taken on and the training you've you've done? Certainly. In uh, 97, I attended a uh, reserve officer class. It was a joint class between the College County Sheriff's Office and the Walterboro Police Department. I had to actually wait until I turned 21 to take the final exam, went down to the academy, took the exam, 
past. Began working as a reserve. I then got hired as a dispatcher at the Waltzboro Police Department, where I worked a short stint as a dispatcher to fill in a hole. And in the spring of 98, I attended the South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy. I graduated later that year. I actually graduated as a distinguished graduate from the academy. Since then, I've been doing law enforcement. I did my first 16 years with the city of Walterboro, and I transferred over to the sheriff's office January 1 of 2013, where I have remained uh, since then. I've worked through pretty much every division there is in law enforcement, probably with the exception of civil process. I have an extensive background in firearms. I'm a firearms instructor, less than lethal instructor, active shooter instructor. I've had uh, training as a narcotic supervisor. I've been through schools for administration, pretty much everything. What's your current rank with the Sheriff's Department? Currently as captain. And uh, well, how would you describe your responsibilities uh, presently? So currently I oversee special operations that includes our investigative division, our tactical team, uh, search and rescue. Have you uh, ever had an opportunity to testify as an expert in uh, in a trial? I have. Tell us about that. Uh, this past year in 2022, I testified in federal court in Charleston, South Carolina, on a case uh, involving the city of Beaufort. And I was sworn in as a expert witness in general police procedures. I'm going to direct your attention back to the date of June 7, 2021. Are you familiar with that day? Yes, sir. What was your role with the sheriff's office back on that date? The same as it is currently. Supervising investigations? That's correct. Would that include homicides? Yes, sir. Were you dispatched or were you noticed of uh, an incident that occurred on that day? I was. I actually heard the call and went in service before I was dispatched, but yes, sir. All right, what did you hear over the radio? Call coming out that a transfer from Hampton County had been received in which the caller was reporting that his wife and child had been shot. <clears throat> did you know a location at that point? I was given the location by dispatch, but I was not familiar at the time of the dispatch as to the parties involved. And at that point, did you decide that you were going to go to the scene? I did, sir. Uh, what was the dispatch lo location? It was 4142 Moselle Road in Arlington. Uh, were you made aware of who this involved? At that I was not at the time. Is uh, 4147 Moselle Road within the, the limits of Colleton County? It is, sir. And walk us through what you did that night upon, you know, learning of this incident and then uh, making your way out there. Walk us through that process. Yes, sir. I, uh, I had a brief conversation with uh, Sheriff Phil by telephone while in route. He had been advised of the uh, caller's identity as Mr. Alex Murdoch. With my career familiar with the Murdoch family and Mr. Murdoch, Sheriff Phil advised me that if it was in fact confirmed to be Mr. Murdoch, that he would likely notify SLED simply because of the conflict of interest with the family. And uh, shortly before we arrived, I believe he was able to confirm that. And that call was made to request for assistance from SLED and to request that they actually assume primary in the investigation. Does your department, the, I mean, the sheriff's office, do you all work uh, fairly closely with SLED? Is that a common thing? We do, sir. All right. Describe that process. I mean, not, not including this particular investigation, but in general, how have you all worked with SLED as a law enforcement agency? As far as crime scenes, like response to crime scenes, my division works well, the entire agency, but we work very well with SLED. The remote location, although we have a satellite office for SLED here in Colleton County, actually, for the Low Country, their crime scene unit still comes out of Columbia. So, middle of the night, when they're notified that we may need assistance, or in this case, that we wanted to take them to take primary in the investigation, even with 
with the fact that they're emergency services, it's still going to be about an average of a two-hour response for that crime scene unit once they're notified. So it's very common for us to begin the investigative process at that scene while we're waiting for their arrival with them working jointly with us. And that investigative process usually begins with the acquisition of a search warrant, which we know will be required once the crime scene team arrives on scene. That just comes from a long supported tradition of us working well together and obviously being capable to do so. As a captain and as a supervisor of the investigations, do you typically wear a body-worn camera? I do have one. At that particular night, I did not have it. It's on my exterior ballistic vest, and the scene was secure prior to my arrival, which so I did not have my vest on. On arrival at the scene, were you made aware of who in your department had already arrived? I, I was listening to the radio so that I knew that several patrol units had arrived prior to myself, and I believe myself, the sheriff, and one other detective arrived probably about 10, 10, 12, 13 minutes after the initial officers. you remember the approximate time that you arrived on scene? I want to say it was around uh, 10.35, 10.37 p.m. that evening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As Prosecutor Fernandez continues his direct examination of Captain Chapman, he asks the witness to take the jury through his approach to managing the scene of the Murdoch double homicide. Walk us through what you observed upon arrival. So while en route, I reminded the shift supervisor, Sergeant Daniel Green, to try to maintain the integrity of the scene as best as possible. I wasn't there, so I didn't know the magnitude of the scene. I don't know what he has, but just reminding him, limit personnel inside the scene, do what we can to preserve. Sheriff Hill came across the radio. I was trying to pull the weather up in this particular area I was driving through. I did not have much phone signal, so he did, and realized that we had an approaching storm that was about 45 minutes out. So he advised over the radio once he got his phone to pick it up that we needed to secure a tent. I had not been there yet. He was requesting the tent to place over the deceased bodies of the two victims. I relayed that information to one of my lieutenants that was en route. I also turned one of my detectives around that has the longest drive in, which is Detective Rutland, and I informed her to head to the office to start working on a search warrant. Is that your common practice? Yes, sir. How did you talk? You spoke before about you, you all conducted joint investigations with SLED. Describe for us what your roles might be in a joint investigation and what SLED's role might be and how that played out in this case. Certainly. So the very first thing, obviously, is a notification for request for assistance and then the explanation of what exactly we're, we're requesting. A lot of times our assistance, what's requested is nothing more than assistance with the crime scene. Sometimes it may be that we're asking for them to take the entire case. In this case, the notification was made by the sheriff. 
All I was told was that SLED was responding, that they were sending a team of investigators as well as crime scene. Knowing that crime scene was en route, we went ahead and secured that search warrant. That's why Detective Rutland was turned around and sent directly to the office to go ahead and initiate that process. Obviously, at 1030 at night, we knew that we were going to have to get the warrant typed and then we we're going to have to locate a judge in the middle of the evening. We wanted to have all of that done prior to the arrival of the crime scene unit. And you touched on earlier a little bit about the weather, but describe the weather as it was when you arrived that evening. As I arrived, hot, sticky, what I have recorded in my notes is uh, 79 degrees, 89% humidity, hot, sticky. Uh, it was not raining yet, an occasional raindrop on the windshield, but no actual rain yet. It was a little foggy on my ride in, but not foggy at the scene, and obviously evening hours. How long was it until the rain? It wasn't very long. I think the radar was pretty accurate. I want to say within 45 minutes to an hour of that notification, the rain did come. You mentioned setting up tents or requesting a tents be set up, what would be the purpose of this tent? So in response to the crime scene, obviously preservation of any type of evidence is important, but the preservation is not always limited to, to leaving it there and taking a picture of it and wait for somebody else to get there. In this case, Mother Nature wasn't complying. We knew that the rain was inbound. So the attempt was placed over Maggie's body in an attempt to preserve any evidence that may be there. I only had one at the time. Paul's body was positioned somewhat over an extending ledge that I was hopeful would keep some of the rain if it did start off of him. The other evidence would have been anything from, and at the time I didn't know what we were going to be facing, but from, you know, tire tread, footprints, shell casings, anything at all. So the intent would be to preserve that as best as possible. And if it was going to be affected by the approaching weather, do the best thing we could to mark it out, measure it out, and have that done or partially done by the time crime scene arrived. When you arrived on the scene, would you have considered the scene to be secured at that point? I arrived pretty quick. I know that as far as the immediate area that I'm sure that you ladies and gentlemen have seen with the, the tape and the videos that were played earlier, the immediate scene, yes, the outside, you know, the property's approximately like 1,700 acres, and it's not just that property. It sits in the middle of nowhere. At the time, we did not know what we had. I don't know if we had a active shooter, didn't know if we had a murder-suicide, didn't know if we had people in the woods. We don't have any idea. So, Inner perimeter secure, I would say yes, sir. Outside, you know, in the woods, across the street, I wasn't sure yet. I didn't know. Is it fair to say that there was a lot of unknowns at that point when you first arrived? A lot of unknowns when I first arrived. Very little known other than at the time what they had gotten as initial information from Mr. Murdoch and the fact that we had two deceased. This is part of your law enforcement training throughout the years. Have you had any experience with or or training in life-saving techniques, if if needed, if, if someone were needed CPR or something like that? Oh, yes, sir. And arrival on the scene, did you physically observe the two bodies that were present, both of Maggie and Paul? I did, sir. And in your estimation, was it clear to you that they were deceased? Yes, sir. Did you consider that life-saving techniques would be possible or would have any result? I did not. Uh, paramedics were there shortly before me. Got a great fire rescue. I was assured that if there had been anything that could have been done, it would have been initiated prior to my arrival. But from what I saw, it was uh, well beyond that. Upon your arrival at the scene, were there anyone else present that were not either sheriff's office um, employees or employees of EMS and fire? Was there anyone else present on the scene? 
the two victims, Mr. Murdoch and emergency services. You mentioned Mr. Murdoch. Is, uh, is that Alex Murdoch? Yes, sir. Is he present here today? Yes, sir. He's seated at the defense table, uh, blue blazer, white shirt, and glasses. Did you have an opportunity to observe Mr. Murdoch that night? I did, sir. As part of your responsibilities there, what capacity were you there at the scene? Again, investigative. I, I realized that, you know, we had notified SLED to take over, but again, what we were attempting to do and what we did do was identification of any potential evidence. We marked that potential evidence. If time had allowed, it would have been photographed. And then from that point, simply protected absolutely zero collection of anything was done by any of my staff, with the exception of one GSR kit that was instructed by SLED. Fernandez next lays the foundation for asking Captain Chapman about aspects of Sergeant Daniel Green's body cam video that has already been introduced as evidence. Have you familiarized yourself with the body-worn body video of both Ms. Uh, Deputies Green and uh, McDowell? I did, sir. What was your first order of business upon arrival, in particular relating to, to Paul? Uh, by the time I got there, they had placed a sheet over both of the victims. Uh, it's something that I don't like. I understand that a lot of times it's placed there so the family doesn't have to see that, but prefer that it does not happen. But in this case, it is already there. Because the scene is still somewhat fluid, we talked about the inner perimeter being secure, but as reported by Mr. Murdoch, we don't know who the defendants are. We don't know where the shooters are. We see shell casings scattered around the ground that are obviously rifle casings. There's some evidence to support that at least one or, or more shots into Paul were from a shotgun. That means two weapons. So were there two people? Are there other people that may be injured? So inner perimeter may be considered secure, outer perimeter not so much. So we began really quick with an inspection of the two individuals to make sure that we had not missed a weapon or that the initial responding officers had not missed one. And we could see that Maggie, there was nothing laying beside her. We looked closely. Again, we didn't move her. So we went over to Paul and I had a couple of the deputies there and a detective lift the sheet just so that we could look and make sure there wasn't a weapon underneath him. His hands were tucked so you couldn't see underneath his body, but as best we could tell from present state of the body, unless there was a weapon directly underneath him, there was nothing out to left or right. Fernandez next brings up Sergeant Green's body cam video on the courtroom TV monitors that is paused on a frozen image. Just looking at the still image right now, are you familiar with the scene there? And can you describe what's going on? Yes, sir. So uh, that's myself, uh, Detective Tyndall, uh, Chief McRoy from the Colleton County Fire Rescue. Lieutenant Lonnie Nettles in the background near the perimeter, inner perimeter tape, and uh, victim Paul Murdoch body to our left there in the open doorway to the feed room. What are you uh, preparing to, to do here? At this point in time, double checking to see if there is a weapon. Yeah, I told you before we weren't sure whether we we're talking about a full murder, a murder-suicide, uh, active shooter scenario. Are there other suspects that may be in the woods? We knew we had the casings that matched to a rifle with some evidence to support a possibly a shotgun. So when asking if any other weapons had been found, everyone stated no. So I had them lift the sheet to make sure there wasn't the barrel of a gun or anything sticking out underneath the body. What scene here and your, your observations of what you're what you're looking at the uh, kennels directly to the left if I, if I could direct your attention to those yes um, did you notice animals in those kennels believe in the one two three there's a couple kennels closest to the feed room that did have dogs in them and possibly one towards the end they weren't all full but the ones closest to the feed room I think there was a dog in at least one or two of them and was the area wet 
The area directly in front of the feed room was like wet, wet. There was also water that tailed out of at least the first two kennels. The rest of the sidewalk was not wet. This and that water, I never saw a hose, so I'm not sure if it was leaking from something, but it was actually standing water. And uh, was that water present consistent with the weather at the time? No, sir. It hadn't rained yet. Not not enough to leave anything. It was a drizzle here and there. You observed uh, the body of Paul. Was it physically wet as well? He was saturated with, uh, obviously, blood tissue and his clothes did appear to be wet but almost as if like absorbed from the ground up not saying that someone had sprayed him with a hose or anything prosecutor fernandez then plays the portion of sergeant daniel green's body cam video where we see captain chapman along with several other first responders walk around the dead body of paul murdoch among the individuals in the frame is deputy chad mcdowell did you direct Deputy McDowell into the, the feed room area to help with lifting of the sheet? I did, sir. Why would you do that? I want the sheet lifted directly up, not drug across the body. Again, I told you I'm not really a proponent of sheets, but it, since it was there, I would prefer that it be lifted straight up. I had already walked through to see what, if anything, right there. You can see I'm cautiously stepping there, but I'd already checked to see if we were going to be able to step to the inside of it, the spot right inside of the door, inside the door frame. I had looked, and I felt like you would be able to step straight in, pick the sheet up, put the sheet back down, step back out. And is preservation of a scene important? It is important. In your line of work? Absolutely. Is uh, equally important uh, securing the scene and making sure that you understand if there's any loose firearms around or that there's any other controlled circumstances going on? It is. Again, you know, the sole purpose of this right here is to help determine whether or not I have any suspects still on the move or if there's a weapon underneath him. Prosecutor Fernandez resumes the video. We now see the first responders lifting a sheet off of Paul Murdoch's body, including Deputy McDowell, who does so from inside the feed shed. As the sheet is held aloft, Captain Chapman looks under and around the body. First, we might have some more sheets we can scale. Is this you looking for the, the gun? It is, sir. What do you notice about the body physically laid there, there of Paul's body? Uh, feet towards the feed room, head towards the uh, driveway, hands tucked underneath the body, fairly saturated in blood, majority of the head is gone. There's a lot of tissue, what appears to be at least some of the brain or, or, or most of the brain lying on the opposite side from me to the victim. Wet, again, I'm assuming probably from soaking up rain or water, whatever that is off the sidewall, smartphone sitting on, propped up on the back of him. Was Paul's person saturated in physical matter and blood? Yes. Could you have touched Paul's hands or wrists without physically moving him? I can't actually see his hands at this point in time. Fell down on top of him? They're underneath his body, yes. Fernandez next asks Captain Chapman about a cell phone that can be seen laying on Paul Murdoch's body in the body cam video. What did you observe that was laying on top of Paul's body right there? Again, it was a smartphone. Did you have a chance to examine that smartphone, get fairly close to it? I got close to it. I didn't pick it up. I was present when it was actually collected later, but it was not collected at this point. Describe the collection process that occurred uh, after this. It was collected by myself and uh, Agent David Owens. I believe he's going to be your case agent. Uh, as far as collection of that, I stood by as a witness as he collected. He had on rubber gloves. It was picked up. He didn't actually do any manipulation of the device in front of me. It was bagged as evidence and placed in the vehicle. Was the phone physically bloody? I don't recall any blood or water on the phone. I'm not saying that microscopically there wasn't, but I don't recall from the naked eye seeing anything that 
That's what I'm asking about. No, sir. From your observations, was it wet from either water or blood? No, sir. And when it was lifted off of Paul's shorts, did it leave like a mark of blood or water or anything like that? Not that I recall. No, sir. Prosecutor Fernandez resumes the video. We hear Sergeant Green from behind the body cam responding to Captain Chapman's questions about the phone and any firearms. I haven't asked the dad about the phone, but he dad did say he came over and checked the pulses. Beyond that, I don't know what else he did. He did have a shotgun with him. I have secured that in my vehicle. Were you able to locate a firearm underneath the body of Paul? When the uh, coroner's office arrived and the crime scene getting victim Paul was eventually moved, there was not a firearm underneath. Are you familiar with the rifle round called 300 Blackout? I am, sir. Is that a, uh, in your 26 years of experience, is that a caliber that you come across with any frequency? In the last couple of years, probably more than ever, but in all the crime scenes that I've worked, I believe this was, at the time, the second ever in my career that had a 300 Blackout as far as being involved in a homicide. As supervisor on the scene, is it part of your responsibility and your duties to sort of direct what people do? You're the person in charge? It is, sir. Does that free you up to do other things? If others, if you have your deputies doing the tasks that you've assigned them? If possible, yes, sir, sometimes. And on this particular instance and this night, were you able to um, to observe Mr. Murdoch and see what he was up to? Oh, yes, sir. I, and I spoke to him on a few occasions. Whenever you're investigating a case, when I ask you about items that, that you might designate as uh, points that you need to address. Yes, sir. Do you describe what that might mean? What's, what's, what's in general like an investigative point or investigative cue that you need to focus on? Anything that we hear or see that based on the limited amount of knowledge we have at that particular point just creates a unknown, something that may need further investigation, something that maybe doesn't necessarily correspond with the evidence on scene or with the statement made by somebody. It's something that just we need to follow up on. It can't just be left alone or accepted as fact. I'm going to ask you about physical observations of Mr. Murdoch. Did he appear to be, at least outwardly, did he appear to be upset? Yes, sir, he did. Were you close enough to observe whether or not he actually cried or had tears in his eyes? He was upset, uh, definitely upset. I got up to him again. Like I said, I spoke to him on at least two different occasions. He was breathing hard. You know, his facial expressions were that of, you know, torment. But did I physically see him crying? I did not. He was sweating, but he wasn't crying. What did you observe about his clothing? Clothing was clean. I uh, didn't see anything that stuck out. And, uh, obviously, no dirt or blood or anything that indicated he had been rolling around on the ground or that he had you know, been involved or anything up to that point. And with that testimony about Alex Murdoch's demeanor and appearance, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join our next installment as we continue our look at the testimony of Colleton County Sheriff's Captain Jason Chapman, the senior officer who responded to the scene of the Murdoch murders. Also, check out the new Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.